Hypertension, and particularly acute severe hypertension, is just a small subsection of vascular medicine. And here we are at lecture number four on that topic, and you see that not everybody appreciates the vascular system in their day-to-day -day lives. For example, it has been shown, and not everybody appreciates this, that if you took all the arteries out of your body and laid them on the ground beside you in a straight line, you'd be dead. While you probably would have figured that fact out on your own, here's a fact that you may not appreciate that most people in medicine don't think about day to day. And that's the topic of automatic blood pressure cuffs. So of course, when you were taught how to perform a manual blood pressure, you listen for those sounds, for when we could discern the systolic and diastolic blood pressures based on auscultation, but think about it. Automated cuffs, which is how most blood pressures are taken in most hospitals and most settings, don't auscultate, meaning the cuff can't hear. And since these non-invasive cuffs can't hear, what they're doing is they are feeling. They are feeling for oscillations and pulsations, and they're not listening. And therefore, the only thing these automated cuffs are measuring are the MAP, the mean arterial pressure. And so these manufacturers of these non-invasive blood pressure cuffs then use algorithms that are designed by each individual manufacturer to come up with a calculation to give a systolic and a diastolic pressure. So how trustworthy is automated non-invasive blood pressure monitoring? Well, that's actually the title of an article from ACP Hospitalist all the way back from October of 2009. That's the exact title. How trustworthy is automated non-invasive blood pressure monitoring? And the article explains that since each manufacturer has its own method, its own algorithms, its own calculations, there can be considerable variation between machines and manufacturers. And that's why what matters most, particularly in pretty critical or important situations, is that mean arterial pressure, the MAP. And that's why those of you who do do critical care medicine, and let's face it, it's becoming a more and more dying art form among hospitalists as hospitalists get excluded or purposefully exclude themselves from the intensive care units, and it's being covered more by critical care medicine specialists. But when you write orders for things like vasopressors, for example, to keep the blood pressure up like norepinephrine, you're usually targeting a MAP. And that's why we probably should be moving more towards discussions of mean arterial pressures with hypertensive urgency or hypertensive emergency, which kind of goes against what I've said in the last few lectures about how much to lower systolic and diastolic pressure. But really, I think as this evolves, meaning the practice of medicine, whether it's in an intensive care unit or on the floor, because a hypertensive emergency if you're the hospitalist taking care of it on the floor, it doesn't really matter that they're not in an intensive care unit. You have an intensive care situation, a critical care situation that potentially you could be waiting a long time for to get into an intensive care unit. So you got to handle your business, right? And as this evolves, what we know is that we're not going away from automatic blood pressure cuffs because nobody is going to pay nurses and CNAs and doctors to sit there with all these patients to do true auscultation. 
meaning we're not really entering a time in medical history, or I should say medical future, where the government and administrators are saying, let's slow down efficiency and get away from these cuffs and you know we'll do everything by auscultation. No, it's more and more going to be automated as medicine keeps evolving. And those automated cuffs are here to stay. And that's probably why the field of acute severe hypertension should be more targeted towards mean arterial blood pressure than these calculated systolic and diastolic blood pressures. I wish life was more simple and that automatic blood pressures and auscultation were exactly the same, but life isn't a Cinderella story. And let's face it, in real life, if you lose a shoe at midnight, you are drunk off your ass. Okay, one thing I did want to mention really briefly, which I haven't mentioned so far, is posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, PRESS. Again, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. You will see this. You won't see it a lot, but if you're aware of it, you will recognize it. And if your radiologists are good, they will point it out to you as well. What the radiologist report will often say is that it's in the differential diagnosis, which is all it has to say because it's not completely something they can call every time from the MRI. But they will tell you that it does remain in the differential diagnosis. So posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome is basically a neurotoxic state and it occurs because of the inability of the posterior circulation to auto-regulate to blood pressure changes. So sometimes hyperperfusion, very high blood pressures, result in disruption of the blood-brain barrier. At least that's one of the theories of how this occurs. There's really two leading theories. So one is you get very high blood pressure acutely, and that leads to loss of self-regulation. So there's a hyperperfusion event that happens with endothelial damage and vasogenic edema that can be seen on the brain MRI. The other theory is that there's endothelial dysfunction, so you might have hypertension, and this leads to vasoconstriction and hypoperfusion resulting in cerebral ischemia and subsequent vasogenic edema. But nevertheless, it is a type of hypertensive encephalopathy. Those from some other cultures that are totally wrong, say encephalopathy, but it's encephalopathy, right? Because we're always right here in the United States. It's a little confusing because about 25% of press patients didn't have severe hypertension. So I guess there are some other things that can cause it. Um, bone marrow and stem cell transplantation. So those type of specialists will be more aware when they see it in those settings. But occasionally it can be lupus, or TTP, you know, thrombocytopenic, thrombotic, purpura. But how I've seen it has been hypertensive situations. And basically what you're seeing is a vasogenic edema within the occipital and parietal regions of the brain. You can see this. So if you Google this or look at pictures of it, or if you've seen actual cases of it, it's pretty obvious on the MRI meaning the average hospitalist or internist or whoever's working in the hospital can see these hyperintense affected regions, T2 hyperintensity, it's actually T1 hypointense, but you can see it nevertheless when you pull up the MRI images, particularly after a radiologist already pointed out that's in the differential diagnosis, but it does look different than your average infarct, both in pattern and just how it visually looks. And the beauty of press compared to something like a infarct is that 
the reason it says reversible in the name is that most people do make a pretty good recovery, often within hours, but usually within days. Those that don't recover, often the reason is there was some sort of hemorrhage in that area. But the symptoms of press are really common, meaning you're going to see symptoms all the time, which is why you should keep it in the differential diagnosis. So encephalopathy, how often do you see that in the hospital, meaning confusion and drowsiness? And then sometimes there's visual changes. Sometimes it can mimic a stroke like a hemiplegia. And then, unfortunately, seizures are pretty common with press. So if you think you got press and you think it's related to hypertension, as opposed to one of the other things I was talking about, like an autoimmune disease, sometimes medications such as cancer chemotherapies or immunosuppression can also cause press. But again, majority of the time, it's going to be a hypertension issue, an acute hypertension issue. But whether it's hypertension or one of those other issues, what you're trying to do is stop feeding fuel to the fire. So if it's a press-associated condition like an autoimmune disease or a medication that's causing it, you're going to hold the medication and try and treat the underlying problem. And when it comes to hypertension, you're going to try and lower that blood pressure you're gonna to have to get rid of the precipitating cause. Now, you may still have to use other treatments such as a brief treatment with an anti-epileptic drug if seizures are present. But for the majority of cases that are usually caused by hypertension, you're gonna to have to lower that blood pressure. So again, you're gonna first see a patient that comes in and they've been developing over either a matter of hours or possibly several days some sort of encephalopathy, possibly seizures, and then you're gonna get this neuroimaging finding of press that usually is a bilateral vasogenic edema in the occipital and or parietal lobes. And then you're gonna be like, oh my God, I can be a hero because this is one of the few really bad neurologic situations that I can completely reverse much of the time. Not always, but the majority of the time. And part of how successful you will be in reversing that condition is how quickly you recognize it. Now, unfortunately, you really do need neuroimaging to recognize it. So that can be part of the delay. Now, before I get too into press, I should also say that it doesn't always go by that name press, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. It really depends on the source of information that you're looking at, what the name is. So RPLS is another name for this. So if you look on up to date, for instance, they call it reversible posterior leukoencephalopathy syndrome. It doesn't matter what you call it as long as you understand what you're looking at and trying to treat. The current recommendation, and like everything I've talked about in the previous lectures, which is subject to change, the current recommendation is to try and lower the blood pressure about 25% in the first two to six hours. And at the moment, the recommendation is not to try and overshoot that too much. Again, as I've said ad nauseum, the concern with overshooting and dropping the blood pressure too quickly is that you lose that autoregulation theoretically. You could cause cerebral ischemia, you could cause coronary ischemia, you can cause renal ischemia. Whether that is just theory or will actually pan out in studies, or maybe a study will actually show it's better to drop the blood pressure more than 25%. Again, 
that remains to be seen. Now, trying to be real with press, a lot of the time when I have seen this condition, we have already treated the blood pressure and they are already getting better and we find out it's press after the MRI comes back. But if you're just figuring it out and they still have high blood pressure, then you probably want to get them in the intensive care unit using an easily titratable intravenous drug that will help you control how quickly you drop the blood pressure. So like clavidipine or nicardipine, sometimes labetalol is used. Nitroprusside, that's kind of a controversial one, especially when it comes to neurologic issues. Again, just theory, but there's this theory that the vasodilation from nitroprusside could paradoxically increase intracranial pressure. Of course, nitroprusside in general is used less as more and more options are out there because of the potential cyanide toxicity that nitroprusside has. I've already covered a lot of the benefits and negatives of some of the agents. You know, one I didn't mention in the past, I think, is esmolol. And that's one that's pretty easy to adjust. By the way, that little weak woof that you hear in the background that you might hear is my three-month-old German Shepherd. Anyway, esmolol is easy to adjust because it has a very short half-life, but many of us find it just isn't that powerful in dropping blood pressures. Your experience might be different, but I know a lot of us feel that way about esmolol. It just depends on your experiences and where you're coming from with it. You know, it's like my 15-year-old today, he was trying to tell me how I don't understand what is really happening these days. And I assured him that despite all his wokeness, I've forgotten more than he's ever known. And at this point, he isn't even worthy to hold up my jockstrap, which I got to cut out that kind of rhetoric because that kid can box. I'm not talking about those posh group fitness classes that shadow box, meaning he goes to the hole-in-the-wall gym in the worst part of town, where they learn how to fight for real. So I'm probably not going to talk back to him much longer. Um, but nevertheless, something like Esmol, he doesn't even know it exists. So at least I got that going for me. Though I did make him wear a mask today, which is not an easy feat for me to do, even during this pandemic, because he has a mind of his own. But I tried to remind him that every disaster movie starts with government guys and the population ignoring what scientists are trying to tell them. And yet he just rolled his eyes at me. And I just remember when he was a little baby. But at some point we all lose our innocence. It's like when I figured out that fire trucks are really just water trucks. Things are sometimes just cooler when you don't know as much. All right, so getting back to just hypertensive emergencies in general, one of the things that I try and do very, very quickly when we no longer have to keep things in a very tight, controlled range is I start oral medications almost immediately, meaning I know that some of them work fast, but a lot of them don't work fast, including some of my favorites. So we were talking about amlodipine on one of the past lectures, and that can take a while to work. That can take a couple days or up to five days to reach a steady state. The full effect of something like an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker can take three weeks. I mean, you're gonna usually get a good effect within a couple days with an ACE inhibitor and an ARB, but usually not right away. There are exceptions, of course, so like something like Captopril has a fast onset, but it also has a very fast offset, which is why we don't use it, and we like to use daily drugs rather than TID drugs. 
It's hard for me to believe that there's anybody out there that's complied with a three times a day antihypertensive drug for more than a year. I know I wouldn't. Anyway, the point I was going to make is that I don't know why sometimes there's a long delay in starting antihypertensive drugs orally. I mean, I get it, again, if you really need to be in that really close titration zone for some specific clinical reason, then it might make sense to hang out in an ICU specifically only for antihypertensive medications. But a lot of times I'm like, boy, I just feel like this person I picked up, we could have started some sort of oral antihypertensive a few days ago, and we would have gotten out of the intensive care unit as a result a day or two earlier. But I get there's reasons for sometimes having an abundance of caution. And, you know, everybody practices a little bit different. And let's face it, to become a professional scientist or a seasoned clinician, it takes years of experience and hard study. There's easier things to become in life. To become a conspiracy theorist, you only have to watch one YouTube video. All right, well, as usual, despite doing something like four lectures on this topic, I feel like we've just scratched the surface and, of course, never, ever consider any of my lectures fully comprehensive. Probably shouldn't even consider any of my lectures in anything. But if you do listen to what I say, hopefully there were some good take-home points that you will be able to use clinically and make you feel a little bit more confident in helping these challenging situations out. And I will catch you on the next round. This is Dr. Gil Peratt. Do your best and carry on.